Welcome to Redeemer Church. Uh, as you can see, our congregation has about tripled in size with some wonderful friends from mine and my wife's original sending church back in Tennessee. They have been a massive blessing to us and have done so much work to make this building a, a more functional space for us to use for the glory of God. But I, I do want to warn you, if you hear random outbreaks of Rocky Top, please do not be alarmed. It's normal. It's just the Tennessean Baptist way of saying amen. But uh, we are so glad to have all of you here with us this morning to worship God through song and by diving into His Word. Now, over the last two weeks, we have begun to walk together through the Gospel of Mark to help us sketch out the true portrait of Jesus and why the life of this figure has changed the entire course of human history. And as I've said before, our goal this morning is not to understand who Jesus is in the light of, say, our pop culture, which attempts to recreate Jesus in its own image. But it is to see who God's Word says who Jesus is. But before we dive into our passage for today, there is a fundamental concept, a, a fundamental theme that is oh so important for us to grasp if we are to understand what Mark has in store for us in these verses. But before we see what that concept is, let us first pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our time together. Father, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together like this. Lord, there are so many people around the world who do not get this opportunity, who don't get the opportunity to come together in relative safety to worship you, to sing praises to you, and to dive into your word together. So thank you for that. And Lord, I also ask that you give us teachable spirits, Lord, that you give us ears to hear your word. And Lord, I pray that your spirit ingrains the truth that you would have us learn today on our hearts. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. Now, all the way back at the very beginning of the story of the Bible, all the way back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve lived in absolute paradise and in perfect harmony with God. But as I am sure that most of you in this room know, all of that changed when Adam and Eve fell to the temptation from the serpent by eating from the tree God forbid them to eat from. And at that moment, Adam and Eve committed what is called cosmic treason. That's what Jonathan Edwards calls it. Rebelling against the Creator God. And the consequences for this were immense. But because of their act of treason, the world and everything in it was plunged into sin and corruption. Plants began to sprout thorns and weeds. Childbirth came with immense pain. Relationships between man and woman became strained. And worst of all, man's relationship with God was severed. In this world that came about, this world of sin and corruption, is what the Bible calls the domain of darkness. This is what he calls it in Colossians 1. In the words of my mentor, it is a world turned upside down, a dark and corrupted mirror image of what the world was and is supposed to be. 
what the world is groaning to be once again, Romans 8 tells us. And this upside-down world, this domain of darkness, is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. It is ruled by Satan and his demons. But it is into this world that we are all born. At birth, our citizenship is set squarely within the domain of darkness, with our own sins being proof of that citizenship. Now, I said a couple weeks ago that a motif that you see all throughout Scripture is that of the wilderness. God often choosing the wild and desolate places to commune with his people. Well, there is an even more prominent motif than that of the wilderness that weaves itself all throughout Scripture. And that motif is the kingdom of God. And this motif of the kingdom of God has a thread that connects all the way from Genesis, goes through our passage today in Mark, and reaches the final book of Scripture, Revelation. But when we hear the word kingdom, I think a certain image or definition pops into our minds, doesn't it? If you are a bit of of a nerd like me, then your mind goes to something like the kingdom of Gondor, for instance, from Lord of the Rings. It's a, a physical place that you could find on a map that is fantastical, with a sprawling city and a castle right in the middle of it. However, if, if we look carefully, we will see that it is not exactly what the Old Testament, for instance, means by the kingdom of God. Take a look at Psalm 103.19 to see what I mean. It says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Now, if you do a cursory glance at this text, it might seem just a little bit odd. It says that his kingdom rules over all, not he rules over his kingdom. So what exactly is going on here? Well, you see, the Old Testament defines God's kingdom not as a physical location, but as God's sovereign rule or his sovereign reign over all creation. He sits on the throne as king, and his kingdom and his reign rules over all. There is nothing outside of his reach. There is nothing and has never been anything or anyone of which he is not completely sovereign over. There is not a single world power or political leader or party that is outside the bounds of his control. There is not a single raindrop that falls to earth without his permission. And there is not a single atom that does not get its instruction from the Lord of the heavens and earth. Listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open and the salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles? His kingdom 
rules over all. And yes, even the domain of darkness, even Satan, is not outside of his sovereignty. But in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God has not yet fully broken into this world. And in Daniel, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Micah, and so on, there was prophesied a day when a Messiah would come down and usher in God's kingdom on this earth in a new way and save a people for himself, gathering them to himself, rescuing them from the enemies of God that surrounded them. And so all of Israel longed for this day to come, to see the great kingdom finally and be fully established on this earth. Now, with this context placed in your mind, if you will, read with me verses 14 and 15 of our passage today in Mark chapter 1. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in normal Mark fashion, he skips over the early Judean ministry of Jesus, you can find in the book of John, and goes straight into Jesus' preaching ministry that begins in Galilee right after the arrest of John the Baptist by Herod Antipas the Tetrarch, a Roman who was given authority over Galilee by Rome. Now, Mark is not concerned with giving us the details of John the Baptist's arrest. But instead, he wants our attention to be drawn to the content of Jesus' preaching. And the content of Jesus' message to those he would have been preaching to was, it was remarkable. You see, Jesus was essentially saying this. He was saying, listen, the kairos, that time, the historic moment in history that you were looking forward to, where the Messiah would break into this world, and bring forth the kingdom of God has come. It is is right now. The saving reign of God's kingdom has arrived in me. The Greek word translated at hand means, means near. That is, spatially close, physically surrounding them, because Jesus, who is king, had come. And he was also saying, I am here to fill my kingdom with my people, who will be the citizens of my kingdom. And so God's sovereign and heavenly rule had finally come to earth with King Jesus. And friends, this this is important. And it is gospel. It is good news for us today. Jesus came to bring people, came to bring us out of the domain of darkness to give us a brand new citizenship in the kingdom of God. And so right now, believer, though you are still living this physical life in the domain of darkness, your citizenship is not of this world. That is what Paul preaches in Philippians 3. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Through his life and his death on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus plunged his hand down into this world of chaos and sin 
and grasped onto your hand and pulled you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, into his kingdom. And because of that, right now, Jesus' kingdom, of which he is King of kings and Lord of lords, is present among us right now, spiritually. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, before his crucifixion, he tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, meaning that it is at this moment a spiritual kingdom. But do not think spiritually means unreal. As Spurgeon points out, what the Bible considers spiritual is more true and more real than anything in this world. And each Christian here is a part of that spiritual, of that real kingdom. But while Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God being at hand in our passage today is, is the good news of God, it also brought with it the most profound crisis that every Jew in Israel had ever experienced. Now, the word crisis comes from the Greek word krisis, which means judgment. And when Jesus the Messiah, the king who brings the kingdom, came down into history, R.C. Sproul rightly says that he brought with him the most profound crisis any human being can ever face. And that crisis or judgment, Sproul says, comes down to this. Those who receive him receive eternal life. But those who do not pass into the judgment of God. And Jesus says to the Jews that your moment of crisis is right now. You must choose which kingdom you want to belong to. And this is, this is the same crisis that faces every human being today. Because you see, the good news of God is not universalism. Let me say that again. The good news of God is not universalism. It is not an all roads lead to heaven situation. Because you see, along with the good news that the kingdom of God has finally come, Jesus also preached the same message that John the Baptist preached in Mark 1.4, that you are not ready for the kingdom of God. You are still entrenched in the domain of darkness because of your sin. Therefore, you must repent and believe. You must repent and believe. If you want entry into his kingdom, those are the keys. The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia, which means rethinking or turning away from. You see, it isn't enough to feel guilty for your sin. That is, that is not repentance. True repentance means a complete change in your thinking in terms of the sinful habits and thoughts that have permeated your lifestyle and turning away from them, fleeing from them to follow after Jesus. And then you must believe. You must trust in the good news of Jesus. You must trust in what is called the humiliating yet perfect life of Jesus that was given as a substitute for our own sinful life by being raised up on the bloody cross. And you must believe in his glorious resurrection. Repent and believe. 
J.C. Ryle says this of these keys to the kingdom. He says, let us ask ourselves what we know of this repentance and faith. Have we, have we felt our sins and forsaken them? Have we laid hold of Christ and believed? We may reach heaven without learning or riches or health or worldly greatness, but we shall never reach heaven if we die impenitent and unbelieving. A new heart and a lively faith in a Redeemer are absolutely needful to salvation. May we never rest till we know them by experience and can call them our own. With them, all true Christianity begins in the soul. In the exercise of them consists the life of religion. It is only through the possession of them that men have peace at last. Church membership and priestly acting alone saves no one. Without repentance and faith, brothers and sisters, the doors to the kingdom are shut to you, and only the judgment of God remains. And friends, if you are a Christian who is serious about evangelism, about sharing the gospel, and you do not preach repentance and faith, then you are teaching the kingdom, but you are not handing out the keys. You are keeping them tucked away in your pocket. You see, a person is not delivered from the domain of darkness and saved from sin and transferred into the kingdom of God through praying a special prayer. They're not transferred into the kingdom of God by signing a card or even through baptism, but only through repentance and faith. That's it. And so if you aren't preaching that, then you are not preaching the full gospel. And so I want to implore you, Christian, preach the gospel of God, but do not let fear hold you back from preaching repentance and faith. Brothers and sisters, this, this world, it does not like that first key. John the Baptist was arrested for calling out the sin of Herod and calling him to repentance. He would be eventually beheaded for it. But I can guarantee you that Herod heard the gospel preached that day. Christian, there are innumerable things that could happen to you when you preach repentance. But without it, there is no gospel. There is no good news. So, Lord, give us courage. Give us courage to preach not just faith, but repentance as well. Now, after this description of Jesus' preaching ministry and its content, Mark then takes us immediately to the account of Jesus calling his first disciples. Take a look at verse 16 through 20 of our passage. It says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, who is also named Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they sorry, excuse me, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. 
And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So as Jesus is walking the shoreline, he abruptly calls out to two groups of fishermen. The first is Simon, whose name will later change to Peter and Andrew. And then the second, James and John. And in Jesus' calling out to these four fishermen, he is putting before them the same crisis he was putting before all of Israel in verses 14 and 15. In the same crisis, the same important moment of decision, he puts before all of us still today. And what he says to them and the way that they respond gives us a priceless insight on what following Jesus is to look like. But first, it is helpful to know that in ancient times, the Sea of Galilee, which was about 13 miles long and and about 7 miles wide, was one of the most productive bodies of water for fishing. The ancient historian Josephus wrote that when the Roman Empire invaded Israel, they commandeered over 250 fishing boats of various fishermen in the Sea of Galilee. Fishing was a huge industry in the Sea of Galilee in the ancient world, and in fact, many of the fish that were caught there were actually exported to many other countries. The uh, New Testament commentator Longnecker notes that those who were fishermen were not typically down on their luck individuals who were trying to make ends meet, but, but rather they were, they were often fairly well-off members of a booming fishing business enterprise. Now, we don't know for certain if Peter and Andrew and James and John were materially well-off. We're not really told that, but... Uh, it would not be much of a leap to assume that, well, that was the case since they were in this fishing business. But again, that's just conjecture. We're not really sure. But with that in mind, imagine being Peter and Andrew. And this and this man who comes from seemingly out of nowhere comes walking along the shoreline as you and I are trying to earn your living by casting out your nets. And this man says, look, I, I, I know you guys are busy, but if you stop what you're doing right now, if you, if you lay down your nets, if you lay down your means of earning a living for yourself and for your family and come and follow me, I will make you fishers of something greater than what you can catch out here in this sea. If you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. What do they do? They dropped their nets immediately and followed after Jesus. That was it. That is, that's all it took. And soon after Jesus saw James and John, he called out to them to follow him, and they left their father and his servants so they could follow after the one who called. All four were faced with the crisis to follow Jesus or stay with their nets and family. And what did they do? They followed. Now, remember what I said about the lucrativeness of the fishing industry in the Sea of Galilee. And this will, this will kind of help you see what exactly it is or it was that Jesus was calling these men to give up. You see, there is a myth 
that often permeates our church culture in America, that the call to follow after Jesus is a call to an easy life, a life devoid of any real sacrifice or uncomfortableness. But Jesus is telling these fishermen to leave their entire livelihoods behind. And not just that, but also to leave their families. That the importance of following him is so great and so urgent that everything else must be counted as lost to go where he goes. It must be counted as loss to tread in his footsteps and to do the work of his hands comes before all else. So, brothers and sisters, there is a cost to becoming a disciple. To not believe that upon repentance and faith, things in your life will become easier, full of health and wealth and everything in between. Following after Jesus is never, never described this way in the gospel or in the epistles. It is not described as easy anywhere within Scripture. In fact, Jesus warns everyone who is thinking of becoming a disciple to carefully count the cost in Luke 14, 28-30. He says this, Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, All who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build a tower and was not able to finish. The late John Stott, an English pastor, he kind of helps us understand Jesus' warning here by saying, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignoring Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal or half-hearted Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved or involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great, soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. You see, friends, a true believer's faith, it expresses itself in submission to the call of Christ and in radical obedience to his calling. Take the account of Luke 9, which is one of the passages in Scripture that through a commentary on this passage by John Calvin, it it changed the entire trajectory of my life. You see, near the end of Luke 9, Jesus is confronted by three men who want to become his disciples. 
Now, if if three men who I'm who I have never met before came into Redeemer Church wanting to become members, I would be incredibly tempted with no questions asked to welcome them in with open arms immediately, especially in this church planning context that we're in right now in New England. But take a listen how Jesus responds to these would-be disciples. It says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, the call to follow Christ means being willing to be homeless. To be willing to not bury your father or your family members and to depart from your family knowing that you may never see them again all for the sake of following after him. That is the call Jesus made to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It was a difficult call. And even though at this time they did not know who he was in all of his splendor and glory, Ultimately, it was because of who he was that they followed. It was because it was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Because it was the beloved Son of God. Because it was the light of the world, the bread of life. Because it was the King of kings that called out their names. They left it all behind to gain infinitely more. Now, even if you have been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years, we are all still faced with that dilemma every single morning, aren't we? Are you going to live today in the reality that Jesus is the most important thing in your life? Are you going to live in the light of your calling to be fishers of men, to be the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit uses the gospel to bring others into his kingdom? To live the radical, costly, yet unspeakably joyful life of a disciple of King Jesus? I pray that you do. I pray that you do. And if you are an unbeliever, you must know that the only way into the kingdom of God is through repenting of your sin and believing Christ. But. But count the cost, because the call of discipleship is a call of suffering for Christ in this lifetime, but doing so with joy in the heart and a song of praise on the lips, because not only is the kingdom of God present now with those who believe, but there is coming a day when the spiritual kingdom of God will be consummated, will be completed when the Jesus or sorry, when Jesus comes again. And when that happens, the domain of darkness and those citizens of it will be rolled up like a scroll and be condemned 
to judgment. But friends, a new heaven and a new earth will be established, and the invisible kingdom of God will be made visible, and King Jesus will physically reign with his people forever. And every pain and heartache, every moment of suffering, every pang of loss for what you gave up to follow Christ, and every ounce of hatred and vitriol that was lavished upon you for the sake of his name will be worth it when he looks down on you with nothing but love in his eyes and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. The, the rest that you have longed for, The completed comfort you have always sought after. The fullness of joy that has seemed so elusive to you. The love and tenderness that you so desperately needed is here in me. That is what you have to look forward to if you but repent and believe. If you are a Christian, then I pray that you hunger and that you thirst for that day. I know I do. And it is coming. But until then, let us be fishers of men, unashamedly proclaiming this gospel of God. Let us pray. Lord, what can I say but thank you? You have rescued us from the dominion of darkness, from the domain of darkness. You have rescued us from our sin and brought us into your marvelous light. Lord, you have exchanged our citizenship from from darkness to light, to your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for that. And Father, we look forward with eager anticipation for your return. And we echo the Apostle John's words in Revelation 22. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.